Today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 5. As always, when time allots, we would like to do a proverb of the day just to give you a little balanced diet scripturally. So we're up to, in the Proverbs, one proverb, 12.9. If you have an Old and New Testament, kind of look down the center. You'll probably run into Psalms. Proverbs is just to the right of Psalms. So Proverbs 12.9. It says, better is the one who is slighted or lightly esteemed, but has a servant, than he who honors himself but lacks bread. Now, this doesn't come out real well in the English, and there are times in the Proverbs every once in a while where um, I'll go back into the Hebrew because it's a little hard to understand. So the best we could do here with this is, in a sense, it's better to be lightly esteemed by the world, by others, or really after the flesh, to look at the outside. Others look at your, the outside of you and they make a judgment upon you. And that's their problem. As a matter of fact, as we go into 2 Corinthians, we're going to see the Apostle Paul speaking about making judgments about Jesus, about his life, and about people in general after the flesh. We'll talk about that. So it's better to be lightly esteemed by the world and either have another work for you, maybe, maybe have a business, or to work for yourself to feed your family then someone who's boastful or flashy or is impressed with themselves and looks to impress others, but they really don't have a lot of depth. They refuse to work. They refuse to do the, the right thing. I guess in a sense, it's don't be impressed by worldly appearances, right? Now, I, I find it interesting in Hollywood and uh, the media, who they prop up to be someone that you should look up to. Usually, if they prop somebody up, go in the opposite direction. I saw a few interviews, uh, Barbara Walters and um, I can't remember who else it was, um, somebody else who's uh, Oprah Winfrey. I mean, I don't watch Oprah, but apparently this Lady Gaga, she's a singer, she's making a big splash, and I'm listening to her, and I don't judge the girl, she's young, she has a few interesting things to say, but she's a confused girl. There's a lot of things about her that are confusing. She uses her sexuality in her act to attract uh, people to herself. And, and you see a lot of these people, they're fads. They come and they go. Now that's someone that the world is impressed with. But we certainly wouldn't take our spiritual advice from Lady Gaga, now would we? <laughs> it's a weird name. <laughs> Who said I might? Stand up. <laughs> anyway. If you're going to make comments like that, save it till the end. Anyway, the, the point is, don't be impressed by those who are always giving an outward appearance, uh, flashy, making a show of the world, but there's no depth, there's no character, there's, they're always showing off their nice stuff, but they have a problem prioritizing their life. I think that's the lesson here. So the last time we focused on the eternal, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, he spoke about the here and now, and today we're going to see how to live in light of being a new creation in Christ. So move forward past the Gospels, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians 5. Starting with verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, For we know that if this earthly house or our physical body, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation or our dwelling, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, 
not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. In context, the Apostle Paul just got done speaking about the temporal world, the here and now versus the spiritual, and what's most important. And here he basically explains to us what happens when we die. When this earthly house, when this body is destroyed, what happens? It's a question many people ask. Probably precipitated by all the false doctrine that was starting to permeate into the church at Corinth. See, the Greeks at that time believed that the soul upon death was freed from a bodily prison. That the flesh was inherently evil. And the soul longed for death so that it could be whisked away and and finally be free. That... There is no resurrection. There is no physical resurrection. Just a bunch of disembodied spirits floating around when we die. And it's not based on anything. See, man has always done a few things. Made religions because he knows that something made all this. Romans uh, tells us that. You know, he just knows that there's something bigger than him and greater than him, a higher power that's created all this, even though he may not understand who God is. But man also desires to know what happens when we die. Because if you've lived long enough, you see people die, those that you love. And, and you try to have to reckon that question in your mind. And this is good because the Apostle Paul is answering it for us, right? I want to read 1 Corinthians 15, which is really the resurrection chapter. Just a few verses, just to, to kind of prime you up a little bit. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Paul says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, which was a euphemism, a nice way for saying we shall not all die, but we all shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? So you see a lot of this uh, putting on, putting off, a tent, a house. You get the impression where he's using things in the physical realm that we can understand to make a spiritual point. That's really a parable. That's what Jesus did. Everybody could understand putting on, change of clothing. Everybody could understand going into your house and going out of your house or your tent. So that's, that's all to just prime me up for what we're going to talk about. Back to first, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1. He speaks about this earthly house. Well, in 4, he said, we have treasure in earthen vessels, in clay vessels, and the body's comprised of the same elements that you can find outside in the dirt if you dig it up, right? Because God called us and made us from the dust of the earth. And this tent, he speaks about the tent. Now, the important thing about this word tent is it denotes a temporary shelter. That's the key here. In light of eternity, this is a temporary shelter. When it's destroyed in death, God gives us a better model, an eternal body. And verse 2, he says that we groan or we, we moan or we sigh or we look forward to better days. And what's interesting is Romans 8, 22 through 26 says the whole creation groans. You have the earthquakes and the movement in the tectonic plates that cause the volcanoes and the earthquakes. You know, the earth's crust is unstable. And as time goes on, it's going to become more unstable. The sun is on its way to burning itself out. It has these flares every so often. If you look at the second law of thermodynamics, everything in the creation is going from a a good state 
to a state of disorder. That's the way we're trending. So it's kind of cool in Romans 8. It says that the creation also groans. And Jesus said that if the rocks didn't cry out and praise him, or if the people didn't, that the rocks would. And God can do that. Right? So the, the, the creation as well as us, because of the sin curse, is subjected to futility. We desire something much better, suited forever in eternity. You know, all this talk, I'm thinking of the earthly house and the groaning and the creaking, and I was going to change the message name to be This Old House. <laughs> Remember that show? <laughs> you know, they took these old beat up houses and they would try to make them look nicer or, or make them stable. So we, you know, and as you get older, you can understand the whole This Old House concept with arthritis and pain and all the other kind of things. But I, I didn't call it that. Verse 3. Paul says, indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked or spiritually naked in the sense that the soul, the spirit, is supposed to have a covering. See, in the Revelation study, we talked about this idea of Christoplatonism, which has really found its way into even Western belief about what happens when we die. And it was the belief that when we die, the physical body falls and this kind of white cloud like Oreo cream just comes out of us and floats up to the heavens and bounces back and forth from cloud to cloud. That's not in scripture. That's weird. I don't look forward to that. You know what I'm saying? It's, I, you know what I'm saying? How do you get used to that? Verse 4, he says... We groan in this tent, not because we want to be unclothed, not because we want to die, not because we have a death wish, but because we long to be clothed with a better model, suited better, and really closer to our Savior. And, and we can look forward to that. Do you realize that, Christians, we really don't die? We don't die. We just change states. The eternal model now is, is reclothing our, our spirit, our soul. It's the mechanism that drives us, the, the thing that makes us unique, right? But it's not this model. You see, two things are at work here. We are eternal beings. When we're born again, our spirit is revived. We're born of the spirit. We are eternal beings. And that's going towards, like if you chart it on a graph, it's kind of going up. But at the same time, our bodies are decaying and it's going down. Right? The outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. This is really fascinating stuff. And we don't want to remain in this state with these decaying bodies. That would really be a sentence. It would be a prison sentence. So one day, there'll be no more prayerless. Hey, brothers and sisters, won't be, we won't be praying for them to be healed of cancer or disability or mental anguish or tiredness or fatigue or pain. And the list goes on. What I find amazing is that humans who don't know the Lord, who are natural men and women, who don't know what it means to be born again, they want to live forever here. You've seen the movies, Dracula, the allure about getting bit and living forever, right? Or this picture of Dorian Gray. He keeps that picture somewhere in a closet, and as long as he doesn't look at it, or the picture gets older, but he still re maintains his youth. Or let's just bring it up to technology. Read some of these... Um, Un, you know, non-believer um, science fiction novels. And they there was a movie made about this, The Sixth Day, with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And what happened was you would have your DNA, they would clone you, and they would make all these blanks. They would look like you in a youthful state with the brain and everything, but they'd be floating in suspension. And as you got older, you know, at a certain age, and you started breaking down or you were mortally wounded, they would take your essence and your mind and your soul and bring it into this blank, and in essence, you could live forever. 
Man has always wanted to live forever. You know, cloning and, and all the different things they can do with the genes and, and the fountain of youth everyone's been looking for. But unfortunately, man is looking in the wrong direction. He wants to live forever here. But what we look forward to as believers is we are immortal beings. We will live forever. But it's going to be, everything's going to be perfect. And the sin element won't be part of us anymore. I'm looking forward to that. Verse 5, it says, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee or a down payment. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well, please, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So this is God's plan, and this is God's promise to us. And to give us a taste, to prove what he's saying, he has sealed us with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee or a down payment. Now, similarly, if you buy something of value, someone will say, the person who's selling it, well, let me see that you're serious. Give me, you know, give me, spot me, give me some money, give me a down payment. And that will show that person a non-refundable down payment that you're serious about buying that product. God puts down a substantial amount of value, his Holy Spirit, to comfort us knowing that he will be back to fully redeem us. Now, there's someone that I respect who said that the word guarantee, uh, and I looked it up in the Greek, but I didn't see it. He said that in modern Greek, that same word is used as an engagement ring. So really, the Holy Spirit, you can look at us, and it's an interesting point. You can look at it as an engagement ring. And when, you know, Jesus says, I have to go away, and in my Father's house are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place to you, that when I come back for you, I will receive you to myself. And it was that picture in the old Hebrew customs of the, of the betrothal period, the engagement period, and the man would go away and prepare a place for his bride. And then in an hour that she was not expecting, he would come back, and he would receive her, and then the whole marriage would be fulfilled. So it's very interesting to look at. So the Holy Spirit is a guarantee. It's a deposit. It's something of value, and also we look forward to God's promises. And in the book of Ruth was, is a great picture of two people, Ruth and Boaz, right? And Boaz is a picture of Christ coming to redeem Ruth, to, to buy her back. And you, you, we have to go into the story and understand all the Jewish customs to get it. But that's a picture of Christ and the church, and so many allusions here. The Holy Spirit, in the meantime, is responsible to help us to change and to be more like Christ. It's a tangible representation of the work that God is doing inside of us and the hope of a future perfection. I say that I'm a hopeless optimist because the more I read the word, the more I just am optimistic because things just get better from here. If you're a believer and you know the word, the more you understand the word, you realize from the point that you're born again, things just get better and better and better and better, right? Paul goes on, if we're home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. If we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. There's no middle ground. Now, verse, or sandwiched in the middle is the verse that says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Why? Because we have no choice but to trust God, his character, his promises, right? As no one that I know of has ever died, seen the other world, and then come back. The only one was Jesus and those he raised from the dead, but unfortunately they they died again, you see, because they came back to this state. So we have to trust God. 
Now, I look at trust in a lot of different ways, and I remember the first time I went under general anesthesia for surgery, and they explained it to me. They said, we're going to give you some drugs, we're going to tie it down, and you're going to go past the dream state, all the way down, almost to death, and we're going to open you up and do some things to you, and then we're going to bring you back up. And I'm like, oh, gee. So I'm just going to be... And I remember, they, they tied me up, and it was cold in the room. I'm like, this is not cool, I don't really enjoy this. And uh, then I'm thinking, well, what if they make a mistake? What if they take my nose off and put it on my ear and make me look like Mr. Potato Head or something? <laughs> I mean, you really have to trust a surgeon when you go under general anesthesia, not to freak anybody out. So far, everything's kind of come out okay. But even more so, when we die, it's ultimate. It's ultimate. When we die, we have no choice but to trust God put our faith and trust and believe in him and believe in his promises and believe in his character that he can't lie and believe that when he promises something he'll always make good on that promise that makes me feel good the truth is we're in one place or the other now there were greek philosophies back then uh, and again man does this when he doesn't know he makes up some type of philosophy that makes him feel good um, there's two other doctrines that's interesting because the seventh-day adventists believe in soul sleep which means that when you die, your kind of soul is on ice. You know, it's kind of in limbo. You're in general anesthesia until the Lord comes back for the resurrection. But that's not reflected here. And growing up as a Catholic, we were taught that there was a purgatory, that there was a place after you die and before you go to heaven that the flames of purgatory help to expiate your sins. They help to clean you out a little bit. I got news for you. If you die and you find yourself in a really hot place, it's not good. <laughs> It's not good because the fires are only good for one thing, and that's for judgment. And we can point to this scripture, and we could point to many other scriptures, including the thief on the cross in Luke 23. One of the thieves uh, gave his heart to the, to the Lord. You see that it's reflected in the story. And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. No soul sleep, no purgatory. Right? The, the scripture has all the answers. And again, the truth is we're in one place or the other. Now, encourage each person with this truth. And we see that in 1 Thessalonians. Even the rapture, this, when the Lord comes back and he calls his believers home, um, we're immediately in God's presence. Now, let me explain the difference between just regular dying, like if I was to die today, and the rapture. If I was to die today, um, who I am, my essence, not this physical body, is gone to be with the Lord. And, of course, in the resurrection, he's he's given us those eternal bodies and we're all getting those bodies at the same time however there will be a point in human history where the Lord will just say that's it this is my timetable enough is enough and he's just gonna come down interrupt human history right the Christ will come he'll call his believers up and we will immediately be changed like the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 so at that resurrection we all get our new bodies understand so we never we never really die who we are, we just step from one state into another. Verse 9. Paul says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether they're good or bad. So notwithstanding the state that we're in, our goal, our aim as believers, as born-again Christians, is to be pleasing to the Lord. And we will all 
stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, don't get confused because we went through Revelation and the great white throne judgment. Again, if you find yourself there, it's not a good thing. That's for those who have rejected God's way of salvation. That is judgment. That is serious. That's damnation. However, we will stand before the Bema seat. All believers will have their own type of judgment, but it will be different. It's not to determine um, salvation or not. That's a free gift, right? But it does determine what we've done in the body and if we will receive a, a reward or a loss of reward. Let me read 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15. And I'm just going to read a portion of it. Well, he says, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work. It's not going to expiate our sins. It's going to test our works to see what, what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on, it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Right? Ephesians tells us that it's a gift of God, our salvation. Right? It's, it's believing and it's the grace that we receive from God. It's not of works because then we could boast about it if it was true works. So salvation is determined. However, there's, a, there's another thing that happens where what we do as believers, uh, our works will be tested to see if they're good or not and if we'll receive a reward or not. Some get saved and they think that they've crossed the finish line and they can just now coast through the rest of their life. Paul says that we run the race to win. As long as we have breath in our lungs and our heart is beating and our brain is functioning as born-again believers, we run the race to win. We haven't crossed the finish line until the Lord calls us home. And some, unfortunately, with the same zeal before they were saved that they had for the devil and partying and drugs and sleeping around and all that kind of stuff with that same zeal for feeding their flesh when they become saved, they don't even have half the zeal for the Lord. We, we haven't passed the finish line yet. And this should be sobering because all of our degrees and earthly pursuits and retirement plans mean nothing in eternity. And those things are not inherently bad. It's just about prioritizing, right? Let me ask you a question, everyone. If you were to die today as a believer, are you cool with meeting the Lord right now? Your life is over. And it could happen. We're not guaranteed another day of life. Are you cool with standing before the Lord, believer? Have you put Christ number one? Is your life edifying and pleasing to the Lord? These are questions we have to ask ourselves. Because many believers aren't doing anything for the kingdom. They're just living for themselves. And even for young people growing up in a Christian home, you don't get points for that. Once you become an adult and the Lord holds you accountable as an adult, you are responsible to the Lord. You can't ride your parents' coattails. It's important to understand some will stand before the Lord with a weak report card. If we look at the parable of the talents, God gave talents to his workers, and he asked them to do business until he comes. He's going to a faraway place. And when he came back, two out of those three workers did a great job. And some less than the other, but the Lord still rewarded them. One, t one uh, servant didn't do anything, and he hid his talent in the ground, and God called him a wicked and lazy servant, and the outcome was not good for him. Things were taken away from him or the works will be burned up. Do we have anything to show for our born-again life? Some have the philosophy that I'll live how I want now and I'll please him when I get there. Paul says whether present in the body or out of the body, our aim is to please God, right? And listen, I'm not here to say this because I want to be a jerk. 
I'm not here because so people could get mad at me and leave the church because it's too convicting. I'm actually doing you a favor, and I'm doing me a favor. I get convicted by my own messages. Because when you get to heaven and you stand before the Lord and everything is burned up, that's not the time to say, gee, can I have a few more minutes and go back? It doesn't work like that. So I'm doing us all a favor by expounding on the scriptures. And sometimes God's word needs to be convicting to us. We're supposed to be building relationships now, having our inward man transformed and working an eternal weight of glory. The philosophy of, I could, I could just sit back, take my ease, rest, and when I see him, I see him, we'll have a great old time. The only analogy I could think about on earth is if the husband and wife, one of the spouses, get an important business opportunity, and they have to go far away for six months, right? And they won't see each other physically for those six months. To me, the person who sits back and says, I'll take my ease, is like the person who says, see you, honey, in six months, I guess you'll come back here and we'll see each other again. No emails, no phone calls, no letters, no visits. That doesn't make any sense. So why do we do that with the Lord? That doesn't make any sense either. The, the fact is, believers will be held accountable for the lives they live. That, now, I'm not sure how. I don't think that's going to be eternal condemnation. That's, that's clear. That's not true. But Scripture is clear that we will be held accountable for what we do here as believers. Verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God. And I also trust are well known in your consciences. The terror of the Lord. God is a God of love. I love that about him. I love that he loves me. I love that he loves me as an individual. I love that we can have a one-on-one -on -one relationship. But my God is also a consuming fire, the Bible says. He has two nature, natures. And we decide, just everyone decides, on what terms they'll meet the Lord. Either as a consuming fire or giving their heart to the, to the Lord, trusting Jesus as their Lord and Savior, repenting of their sins, and walking with God. You have a loving God. But even as believers, the Bible says, to believers, he is also a disciplining father to the believer. Now, things that happen bad in our lives are not always because we did something wrong. But sometimes the Lord's trying to get our attention. And we have to factor that into the equation when we look at the circumstances in our lives. So Paul says we persuade men, others, to come to Christ for two reasons. Number one. Paul and his ministry team knew enough about God's word that they didn't want to be uncommitted. They didn't want to be lazy with the things of God and God's plan. They had a healthy respect and fear of God. And two, knowing what they knew, they didn't want anyone to perish in the judgment. Paul says, we're well known to God and also your consciences. Our walk with God is good and our, our, how we've treated you as men is good. He's trying to explain that. He's talking about motivation for ministry, but understand intertwined here is as he was away, the false teachers came in and tried to uh, break the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians. So at times he had to answer some of the accusations that were leveled against him. Verse 12. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to glory on our behalf that you may have something to answer those who glory in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ constrains us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Paul contrasts his motivations 
and his team versus the motivations of the itinerant preachers and philosophers that came through Corinth. Verse 12, he's not patting himself on the back, but he's saying, use the motivation test for me and for those that passed through Corinth. There were ones that were caught up in appearance. We've read that. They were caught up in degrees and letters of commendation and your schooling. And who thought, who, how the world thought that you, you were good so you should be able to speak in their church. Uh, those that were caught up in money, trying to get as much money as they could from each church that they traveled to. And some of them made pretty good money. But is it any different today? Oh, you see it. Turn on the Christian channel. It's all about numbers. How many people are there? Assets, money, private jets. None of that stuff is found in the Bible for successful ministry. And Paul says, if anything, if you're going to say anything on our behalf, just say that we were genuinely serving the Lord. That's all we want to hear. We're not looking for commendations. Verse 13, he says, we're besides ourselves. Now, some made the, there's um, an insinuation or outright charge that they were out of their minds, that they were besides themselves. Another accusation, trying to break that bond between the apostle and the church that he had founded. And he's saying, listen, if it seems to you that we're crazy because of our zeal for God and his word, it's for God. And if we're sane, if we're on our right minds, the benefit is yours. Either way, it's because we serve God. There are some in life that have a wishy-washy faith. There's no zeal. There's no fire. can't make a convert. You can't really shed your light to others if you just are just so wishy-washy about your faith, just unconcerned, unpassionate about it. And then on the other extreme, some can be bizarre and eccentric and force spirituality. They manufacture spirituality so that they look a certain way, and it never works. It turns people off. So if we're going to find the porridge that's just right, it's probably the one that shows that we're living our faith, that we're the same in church and at a church. It probably shows that we're passionate about what we believe, that when someone talks about our Savior, our eyes light up. And it's just, oh, yeah, I couldn't wait for you to ask me that question, right? To show people that we're consistent and we're in it for the long haul. And that was Paul's example. Verse 14, he says, the love of Christ constrains us. We know what the afterlife holds and we respond to Christ's love. And that's why we do what we do. And Paul goes on. If one died for all, meaning Jesus died for everyone, all were dead. All were dead, spiritually and physically. And this is the course that all of mankind is headed down. In verse 15, he died for all so that those that would live, those that would repent, turn to God and believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, would no longer live for themselves, but live for Jesus who died and rose again. See, Jesus didn't die for our sins. Jesus didn't give us eternal life so that we can uh, have the best of both worlds. And then when we get to heaven, we can just live in eternity and everything would be great. You know, it's not fair. There are missionaries out there that are just so zealous. Missionaries in Afghanistan, in North Korea, believe it or not, in Iran, right? Trying to give the gospel because they so know what it means. And they so want to see others that are created in God's image brought to, to the kingdom. That they have such a zeal in their ministry and their missions work, right? How many can actually say that I live for Christ and know it's the truth? I am no longer living for myself but I am living for Christ. Now, the truth may be closer to, quote, I would live for Christ, and I would serve Christ, but right now I'm focused on blank. What just came into your mind? That could be the God that you serve right now. And 
you know, a career, a degree, your kids, your friends, um, success, all that stuff is good. It's not bad, but it's bad when it takes your focus away from Christ. I would serve Christ, but right now my focus is on, I don't want, you don't have to call it out. Some may say, you know what, I am serving the Lord. I am confident in my relationship with him. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And listen, God always allows repentance to turn around from this point on and start serving him. What are we waiting for? Verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new, a new creation. He said, we regard no one according to the flesh. It kind of goes back to the proverb, that outward appearance. Well, a lot of people saw Jesus, really neat guy, you know, seemed like a nice guy, a prophet, did miracles, and uh, ah, he said the wrong thing, and the Romans hung him and, and crucified him. Pfft, I guess he wasn't the Messiah. That's looking at Christ according to the flesh. You know, when you know the scripture, you know that that had to happen. Jesus said, I come into the world because I have to die for the sins of many. And it's no doubt Paul, in his maddened state before his conversion, looked at Jesus in that way as a failure. He couldn't be the Messiah. They, they crucified him on that, that cross. And other people, Paul looked at them as Jew and Gentile. Whenever he saw somebody, they were either a Jew or they weren't a Jew. And he's saying now, you know, my eyes are open spiritually. I don't regard people according to the flesh anymore, right? We look, man looks at the outward appearance, uh, the Bible says, but God looks at the heart. The real person is on the inside. So, we are new creatures in Christ. One word that characterizes what's supposed to happen when we get saved is change. That dirty word, change. As human beings, we like consistency. We like getting into a groove. We don't like chaos in our lives. We don't like that when we finally get everything down pat, that everything's turned upside down, and we have to pick up all the pieces off the floor and put them the way we like them again. We don't like that as, as people. But... If we are born again, we're supposed to change. Our spirits are regenerate and everything else, our minds, our bodies should fall in line with that new change. You understand? That's important. You are not the addict anymore. I see some of these ministries that I don't agree with. I don't agree with. Someone who struggled with heroin or drugs or alcohol and you become a Christian, you're a new creature in Christ. But hey, come to our addictions ministry. And they talk about addictions, addictions, addictions. Now, it's not always the case, but we are not that old man. We're not that old creature. We are a new creature in Christ. I'm no longer a heroin addict. I'm no longer a pervert. I'm no longer addicted to anything. I am a new creature in Christ, and I need to believe that. I heard someone say, I'm the black sheep of my family. Says who? Who's going to tell you that you're the black sheep of the family? You are a new creature in Christ and don't let anybody tell you because that's a lie. It's just trying to keep you back into the old way. What's the sense in becoming a new creature and then living back as the old creature? It doesn't make any sense. I hope this is coming off more as, as encouraging as condemning. I'm trying to say, listen, we're not losers. We're not throwaways. My, my father's father used to say, eh, the old Italian guy from Sicily, he'd say, eh, Good for nothing, good for nothing. That was his favorite phrase, you know? Called me a good for nothing a few times, you know? But I'm not a good for nothing. I'm a new creature in Christ. You are, and believe this, you are a child of God. 
You are victorious in Christ. You are an eternal person. You are important. You have value and you have purpose because God has given you purpose. He's given you the most precious thing, the pearl of great price, that the person saw that it was in a field and this big worthless field and he sold everything he had to buy the field so he could take that treasure out. You have the gospel. You have the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you say, it'll be done, right? Whatever you ask in my name, Jesus says. That's what you have, and that's what you are. You have purpose, and don't let anyone tell you. Otherwise, don't believe it for a minute because it's insulting to God. How is it insulting to God? Because if I'm a new creature in Christ, and God says to me that I have value and he loves me, and I let people tell me that I'm a piece of garbage and I act like that, I'm insulting him. That is an insult to him. So listen, I don't agree with all the, you know, pampering ourselves and the whole self-esteem thing, but there is an element of that as long as you look at it biblically, that is true. We all have value. I said before, the Apostle Paul, our beloved St. Paul, if they brought him and put him on the Oprah show or something and he said what he did for a living, they would say, he's a failure by American standards. So if Paul could write half of God's word and be used by the Holy Spirit, what can you do sitting here today? What can you do? It's limitless as long as God is with you. Verse 18. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing or not reckoning their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Reconciling us through Jesus Christ, and that's the gospel. And the apostle Paul had this ministry, but so do we, and I'll get to that. Verse 19, God through Christ reconciled, this is important, the cosmos, the world. And there's different words for world. There's different words for earth. There's different words for things in the world. But if you look at the Greek word cosmos, it's understood as all the inhabitants in the world. God reconciled the world. We just have to lay hold of that to himself. Now, I want to correct something that I said last Sunday. Uh, and I don't ever want to speak in generalities. And if I do, I will definitely correct myself. I spoke about the five points of Calvinism. All right? The third point, Limited atonement is really what I wanted to talk about. It says, if you look it up, it says that God, Christ only died for the elect. It's limited atonement. It wasn't open to everyone, just for a select few, okay? According to the scripture, it should be unlimited atonement. That's false doctrine. Because God, even John 3.16 says the same word, cosmos, Right? That God so loved the world that he gave his son to die for the world. And, and 17, that through Jesus, the cosmos, the world, everyone in the inhabitants might be saved. So that's something to keep in mind. Now, he says, not imputing trespasses. If you look at accounting or banking, maybe it makes more sense with the columns, debit and credit and, and accounts and what's in there and what's not in there. So not putting those sins into our account, although we've sinned our whole lives. What God does is he takes the account of all the stuff that we have in there that's not good, that's indelible, and he just wipes it clean. It's a clean slate. And the lights go out. <laughs> I didn't time that on purpose. <laughs> 
So he speaks about the ministry of reconciliation and the word of reconciliation. It's said twice, but a, but a little bit different. And that means that it's committed to us. It's not just for evangelists. The word of reconciliation, again, God gives the, the keys to the kingdom. God gives the ability for us to reach other people for Christ and to, for their sins to be saved. And of course, it isn't us doing it. We're just the ambassadors, and we'll get to that. Verse 20, the ambassadors for Christ. If you understand Roman times back then or even today in our present nation or uh, the Western world, it is a high honor, one of the highest honors for a president or a king to tap you on the shoulder and say, I would like you to represent the United States to England or to Germany or to wherever. An ambassador does that, a high honor. They don't just choose anyone. It's got to be someone that they can trust. And it's not an exaggeration to say that there's two worlds presently that are overlapping. The one world, the one we live in, the one of the flesh, promises pleasure for a short time, especially if you're in the United States. You could get any pleasure, any vice that you're looking for, you can get it right here, not a problem. But it's for a short time. The problem is if you stay in that situation and you're not born again of the Spirit, all it can promise you in the end is eternity of death and torment in hell. There's another world, and the other world, of course, promises eternal life, promises to have a regenerate spirit, promises to have a new body, bliss, eternity, and the new world is filled with joy all the time. I don't think it's a hard decision to see which one we should be choosing. If we are born again of God's spirit and trusting Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are Christ's ambassadors. And he uses the words, we plead, we implore, we beg you citizens. You see, this present world is destroying itself, and it's almost as if, again, two worlds are overlapping, and we're the ambassadors that God has sent out. And this ship is sinking. It's cracking. There's earthquakes. There's tsunamis. There's AIDS. There's cancer. There's death. And we are the ambassadors from his kingdom. And we beg people, please, because we know that what this kingdom holds out. You're on a sinking, uh, sinking ship. Get off that ship. Take my hand. Take the lifeline. It's Jesus Christ. Let me pull you to safety. Two worlds in collision. Two worlds at the same time. That's why there's so much, so much madness around us. Because there's two worlds at war with each other. And God's world, God's utopia, his paradise, his love is always going to win out. The title is New Creations. New creations in our spirit, new creations in our bodies, new creations in our relationship with our God. Verse 21, and who is this Jesus that does this? Who is this Jesus? Because you could read different holy books and they'll minimize Jesus' role. He was a great rabbi, but he said something wrong. He got everybody tweaked, the religious leaders, the Romans, and they crucified him. He's done. We're going to look for new prophets. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Who is this Jesus? He is the one who knew no sin. He had no knowledge of sin. And that Greek word, because there is a few words for knowledge, is gnosko. And that word means experiential knowledge. Of course Jesus knew what sin was. Of course God knew that once man turned away from him, he was going to be in sin. It's not like it sprung up on God and he was caught uh, not really realizing what was going to happen. It caught him off guard. Of course he knew sin. However, he had no experiential knowledge of sin. He had no familiarity. He had no relationship with sin. And there was one point in time in all of eternity that the Son of God, who knew no sin, was put on a cross and he experienced sin. Not only one sin, to, to, to get him kind of ready for the rest of them, 
everyone's sin, yours, mine, people from the past, people who aren't born yet, all that sin was put on him on that tree. And that's why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It must have been a shock to his system. Only one time in human history, in all of eternity, is the Son of God put, had sin put on him, never again. And it was at the cross. And if that wasn't enough, he took his own righteousness, if that wasn't enough insult, he took his own righteousness and imputed it to us once we look upon him and believe that he died for our sins. In a divine accounting feat that only God could do, he emptied our ungodly account that was an eternal sentence to damnation, and then he filled our now empty account with his righteousness, which is a ticket to eternal security and bliss. And that's what we understood as justification. See, in theology, some, sometimes the theology people sit around and we throw big words across, but justification is just that. It's that God imputes his righteousness to us. He immediately declares us justified. It's a positive action. And if that wasn't enough, on top of that, he seals us with his Holy Spirit, helps us to change and become more like him, and that's called sanctification. That's a, pro a process where we more and more, as we grow in, in Christ, we start to emulate him. We start to look like him. We start to reflect and radiate him to other people. I say, you're different. How can you deal with that and just smile? What's with you? You know, but it's kind of weird, but I, I might be interested in that. You know what I'm saying? It's called sanctification. And it is only the Jesus of the Bible that loved us enough to go to the cross and pave that way to eternal life. Let's pray. Lord God, we're so grateful for what you've done.